This is a HeadGum Podcast. Vulture's Good One Podcast is sponsored by ABC's The Alec Baldwin Show. Airing Sundays at 10, 9 central. No monologue, no band, just Baldwin and good old-fashioned conversation with interesting people. Like Kim Kardashian West and Ricky Gervais. Don't miss it. Hi! This is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a comedian comes on to play a joke or a sketch or scene and discuss why and how it came about. But this week, we have something different. A story from a book. That's because our guest this week is Phoebe Robinson, dope queen, comedian, actress, and author of You Can't Touch My Hair. I first met Phoebe before the release of her first book, when she hosted a stand-up show I put on, and it's been wild to see her meteoric rise in the two years since, be it landing on the New York Times bestseller list, the two Dope Queens HBO specials, or starring in the Netflix film Ibiza. Ibiza? Ibiza? Phoebe's second collection of essays, Everything's Trash But It's Okay, out October 16th, documents much of the craziness of that period, from meeting Oprah once, to meeting Bono twice, to, as you'll hear from the story she reads for us, having Julia Roberts teach her how to swim. I'm so excited to feature specifically Phoebe's writing on this here podcast about jokes because Phoebe writes so many damn jokes in her essays. What is so special about Phoebe as a writer is how she's able to capture just how much fun she has actually writing. There's just so much life and pure joy in it. So, next you'll hear Phoebe reading from the chapter, The Top 10 Non-Trash Moments of My Life, and then Phoebe and I talking about living and writing that story. (laughs) I test in yosses. Some people count from one to ten. I go, yos, 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 yos. Okay, great. <laughs> Non-trash moment of my life, number one. Too many white friends. A black woman's journey in learning how to swim with the help of Julia Roberts, her uber-talented husband, Danny Motor, and their family after spending a day on the coast of Avar, Croatia. And yes, that is truly the goopiest most. My children's names are Madison and Grayson. I'm a gentrifier descendant of waspy Connecticut parent sentence I've ever written in my life, let alone experienced. Let me start at the beginning. In 2017, I shot my first movie, more on that later, and then two-month shoot took place overseas in Belgrade, Serbia, and various other cities throughout Croatia. Serbia can be quite the culture shock for Americans, or at least it definitely was for me, but I was psyched to be making my feature film debut on Netflix. I, along with the principal cast, director, screenwriter, director of photography, ooh, fancy, and other key members of the crew, arrived in Serbs a couple of weeks before shooting commenced for typical movie duties, wardrobe fittings, rehearsals, bonding with the cast, etc. Fun times, but here is my travel warning. Do not go to Serbia in August. It was hot. Actually, it was disrespectfully hot. Ignorant, even. In fact, if temperature could be personified in ignorance, it'd be the singer Meatloaf when he competed on Celebrity Apprentice in 2011 and assumed actor and fellow contestant Gary Busey had stolen his paint supplies. So Meat cursed Gary out with the same passion Malcolm X had when delivering his We Didn't Land on Plymouth Rock, The Rock Was Landing on Us speech. It was that hot. How hot was it? (laughs) It was so hot that I get why the devil leaves hell to take an Airbnb vacation to the polar ice caps and melts them because he was mad at living in such a hot-ass home. You get the point. It was hot. Moving on. One day, 
After a wardrobe fitting, I was sweating like Patrick Ewing during his heyday on the Knicks, and I was hanging out with Alex, the director. I mentioned I was hungry and jonesing for water. Alex said, oh, Danny, our DP has some snacks. I'll introduce you. Great, I responded while dabbing my sweaty body with napkins the way bougie people dab a slice of greasy pizza. Danny entered, and two things popped into my mind. One, I recognized him, but couldn't quite figure out why. And two, he's hot, like, looks-wise. The hell dot no. There are few things worse than meeting a hot person for the first time when you look like warmed over three-day-old lasagna. And before you object with some pump-me-up talk, yes, I know. I'm attractive. I'm cute. I'm pretty, but I'm not hot. Hot is next-level attractiveness that makes people trail off mid-sentence and forces their bodies to suffer mid- and involuntary whiplash that's bad enough to warrant a phone call to Salino and Barnes injury attorneys. No one is getting minor whiplash when I walk into the room. Quite the opposite. People's necks are stiff and straight like they're in the process of getting their ears pierced at Claire's. Anyway, Danny is a hottie, and after we briefly met and parted ways, it dawned on me where I knew him from. Oprah! In case you hadn't figured it out already, most things lead back to Oprah. Julia Roberts had appeared on an episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show shortly after she and Danny had married in the early aughts, and she talked about him and showed a few pictures of them together. And there he was in the flesh and in front of me. Over the course of two months, he, the cast, and the rest of the crew were in front of each other every day, whether it was shooting the movie or grabbing a meal or swapping remedies and medicines to battle different illnesses. E.g., I had diarrhea for seven days, and I talked about it to everyone as if I had survived Dunkirk. And on occasion, folks had their significant others or various family members visit. And yes, this, of course, included Julia and their three kids. No one in my family could come for a visit. To cure my homesickness, I jokingly, not jokingly, asked Netflix to get me a yacht for my birthday, LOL, <laughs> that the cast and crew could party on. Netflix very kindly said, new phone, who dis? And my dreams were dashed. That's until a couple of weeks prior to my 33rd birthday when Danny was hanging out with me and my co-stars, Gillian and Vanessa, and mentioned that his family was coming back to town. I should mention that Vanny and I were not chill about this news. But can you blame us? We're both Midwestern gals with a penchant for forcing our friendship onto people. This just consists of a lot of smiling and telling long, meandering, yet endearing stories like this episode. This charm offensive had worked in the past as we hung out with Danny and co. every time his family came to town. So Danny was game and said, we could rent a yacht and hang out. Bitch, we? Ovs, Vanny and I didn't say that. I don't know a lot, but I do know this. When rich people suggest some expensive ass shit, all y'all can do, you could do one or three things. One, laugh uncontrollably like Vincent Price on Thriller. Pull up your checking account info on your banking mobile app and then say, stop fucking around and let me know what time you want to go to CeCe's Pizza tonight. <laughs> Two, toss up a Michelle Tanner thumbs up with a chaser of, you got it, dude, while mentally going over the meth recipe Walter White came up with on Breaking Bad and decide then and there you're going to be a drug dealer for a few days so you can afford to hang out with said rich folk. Or three, as I like to do. Just assume they know you ain't got no money <laughs> and that they'll have to pay for everything. Vanessa and Gillian ended up not being able to go, but I could. So I said, sign me up, Danny. Now, normally I'm distrustful of white people with boats because of slavery. Duh. But I just had a feeling they were going to be hella crudités. There was no way I was passing up on free prosciutto. So cut to the day of the yacht. Julia texted me to remind me to bring my passport. I thought, 
Isn't this how Liam Neeson's daughter ended up in her little pickle in the movie Taken? But texted back, you got it, boo-boo. I, alongside Danny J-Ro, that's what I call her, not to her face. <laughs> J-Ro, their children's Alex and Kevin, one of the movie's producers. We all piled into the yacht. It was tasteful AF. There was an abundance of meats and cheeses and rosé. And more importantly, the small yacht crew was all white. This is notable for me because so often when people of color are invited to fancy things, the only other PLCs there will be the wait staff holding a ratchet chimney sweeper room. Oh, you have all this money and can't afford a freaking Swiffer wet jet for your employees? Sortyourlifeout.com. Anyway, a couple of rich white people paid for a bunch of other white people to wait on me as we sailed around the ocean. So clearly, Julia and Danny adhered to the famous Mahatma Gandhi quote, be the reparations you wish to see in the world. We sailed around parts of Crocro for a bit before chilling off the coast of Havar. Throughout the day, everyone jumped off the yacht, swam around, and basically had the time of their lives in the water. I, meanwhile, kept my black behind on the yacht, sipping wine and cracking jokes because I have no idea how to swim. I know. I know. Way to live up to a stereotype, right? It's just that growing up, my parents were never swimmers. We didn't go to the beach as a family, so it was never a priority for me. I explained this to everyone on the yacht. This information was met with what I can only describe as a tsunami of positivity. I kept telling them no, no, yet they persisted. Smash cut to me in the water with a life vest on as Julia cradled me in her arms while I screamed melodramatically, This is the worst day of my life! She let out her signature laugh that we all love and adore, which is a fair response considering I had been having a great time until I was confronting my fear of water. Still, she, Danny, her family, Alex, and Kevin would not let me give up. So I stuck with it. And no matter how much I tried to remain calm, the buoyancy of the life vest was making it impossible to control my own body in the already buoyant and salty ocean water. So anytime I attempted to move, the life vest would yank my upper body back and I'd flow in a different direction than intended. I called for help like a Coco Veruca salt, and Julia became the most glamorous, Oscar-winning Oompa Loompa with fabulous windblown hair and would gently nudge me in the direction I wanted to go. Eventually, my confidence grew and I took the life vest off, trusting the water more. Danny, his kids, gave me pep talks. Alex held my hand as he taught me to do tiny jumps into the water, and Julia had me hang onto the edge of the boat and practice my kicks. All in all, it felt like the movie The Blind Side, except I never became a professional athlete, I was not adopted into Danny and Julia's family, and no one spoke with a heavy Southern accent. Okay, so it was nothing like The Blind Side. And while I'm not much of a swimmer by any stretch of the imagination, doggy paddling is my sweet spot, I can now float in water the way Denise Richards' tatas did in Wild Things. And honestly, that is the best anyone can wish for. That was Phoebe Robinson reading Phoebe Robinson. Thank you uh, for joining us. Thank you, Jesse. This has been delightful so far, <laughs> even though it's just been me being a hot mess and you're sitting here like, what? <laughs> this has been great. So I want to get to this story and yes. your and your new book, uh, but I wanted to back up a little bit and, mm-hmm. and tell the story of how, how you got here. So uh, to condense it, you went to college for writing and then spent years trying to make it as a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. Then you were asked to write a short op-ed for the New York Times, which reminded you how much you liked writing. Mm-hmm. So that then inspired you to start a blog called Blaria, mm-hmm. which stands for Black Daria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then something clicked, as you note in your first book, You Can't Touch My Hair. Can you describe that moment of when that clicked, that writing was a thing for you? I guess I'm always like kind of oblivious um, to most things. <laughs> 
<laughs> which is part of my charm and also like, oh my God, Phoebs. But I've been like writing ever since I was like a little kid and I used to write stories and whatnot. But I never thought like, oh, I'm going to, you know, be a writer, writer in a real way. And even though I studied writing in college, it was really just because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. But that sounds like fine. Like when you're like, oh, I'm going to study writing. Everyone's like, okay, cool. That sounds legitimate. (laughs) It sounds like he got it all figured out. And then and I had a great time at Pratt and it was really cool. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll be a screenwriter. And I and I chose that because honestly, I wanted to be a performer, I think. But I was too scared to like try and go for it. So I was like, I'll just write and produce and whatever. And then I think it was really when I started my blog that I was just kind of like, oh, I think I do have a knack for this. Like, I know I say this in school, but I think this could be something beneficial and actually change the course of my life, which it ended up doing. So I think the the blog is really what solidified for me that writing is something that I'm good at. Was your stand-up, like, overly written? Like, would you, like, write the pieces? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think most people, when you start doing stand-up, you sort of, like, write every single beat out. And so I was doing that, but... And I don't know why, but even then, I didn't, like, really consider myself a writer, even though I wrote my jokes. I was like, oh, I'm a stand-up comedian. You just, like, don't go, like, oh, I'm a writer necessarily. But I think the blog, because all I had were the words, and it was, like, I couldn't rely on, like, performing it to, like, get my point across. The people just had to read what I wrote. So that's when I was like, you're a a writer. Do you feel like you're able to talk about different things on your blog than you were in your stand-up? Yeah, because I think my blog, which is, like, now deceased, and I, like, removed it. I, like, wiped it from the internet because I'm like, I don't know. It's just, like, your early stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. no one needs to read it. But, uh, yeah, I wrote a, a lot about, like, feminism, race, uh, women's rights, and all those things are, like, not necessarily great topics for a comic starting out because yeah. you really are just trying to get your sea leg. So it's, like, it's best to just joke about like airports because you kind of can't offend with an airport yeah um you're like everyone knows like LaGuardia is full trash so you're like that's fine so yeah I was talking about like a lot of issues and actually sort of figuring out like my beliefs you know when it comes to like social issues and politics through my blogs I really feel like that was sort of instrumental in that and that's how I learned how to I think in the new book everything's trash but it's okay I'm able to talk about somewhat more serious topics and do it in a funny way when did you sell you can't touch my hair and how long did you have to work on it if I have the dates right and I remember I think I'm such a dork but I think I did I did Late Night on Seth Meyers on January 15th, 2015. And that was always my dream was to do a late night. Mm -hmm. That was like my whole thing when I started standing. I was like, you're going to get the the late night set. And that's so I did that. And I sold my book, I think, 10 days later. So it would be the 25th. Mm -hmm. So then the deal got finalized, I want to say like May. And then so maybe I got it like fully done like in a year. Um. With, like, all the revisions yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And then this book, truthfully, so, <laughs> truthfully a week. No, just kidding. But it was so actually supposed to come out, um, like, spring 2019. Mm-hmm. And I was like, guys, you should just move up the pub date because I have, like, my movie coming out and T-Dub Queens. I was like, so I could just get it done earlier. And they were like, okay, great. And they were like, well, how much do you have done so far? And so I, like, fully, like, lied. And I was like, oh, I'm, like, a third of the way done. Mm-hmm. Maybe, like five percent done so i like wrote the second book in like five months and i was 
on, I would be crying. I'd be like, this is so stupid. Like, I was just like working around the clock. So between the time of Blaria to then, this mm-hmm. uh, You Can't Touch My Hair comes out, there was sort of like this transition away from Blaria as the thing that like your sh- live show was called Blaria. Mm-hmm. And then it, then it slowly you were transitioning. And then you were like, Phoebe, one of the two dope queens. Mm-hmm. And that is like, there's such a different connotation to a Blaria idea yeah. and a dope queen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you describe that difference? And how do you think that framing kind of shifted how you presented yourself to the world? Yeah, I think with Blari, it was just like, you know, I could be sort of like dry and sarcastic and I could be like a little nerdy about certain things, whether it's like my love of you too, or like watching like old, old black and white movies. And so when Jess and I started, you know, doing a live show together, it really, like the show just like sort of like changed and opened up. And, you know, I think she... Playing off of her, like, I revealed more of, like, my silly side, which I think is, you know, now kind of, like, a huge part of my brand, if you will. I like to speak in Chris Jenner, ter- Chris Jenner terms, my brand. Um, yeah, I really think that with Two Dope Queens, it really came out of Jess and I just wanted to be something that was, like, really empowering because, you know, we... We definitely have both felt in comedy, especially when we started the show, where, like, there really are no, like, really big sort of mainstream shows that have two black women talking to each other, whether it's about dating, about race, politics, whatever, in this sort of format with, like, stand-up live sort of variety show. And so we just wanted to be, we wanted to feel like a party. And it's like, yeah, you're hanging out with two dope queens. Yeah. That feels like a party. We're going to have our favorite comics and then like celebs who like we've always dreamed of hanging out with. And so I really think that title sort of summed up like what the show represents. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'll say as a person who went, it And it you was went a, pretty early on. Yeah. It was yeah. not like a comedy show at the, any other kind of show I've been to in that like it really was much more of a conversation. The audience mm-hmm. would like be like, yeah, that's true. And then you'd be like, and then you'd be talking to those people. I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is not what like comedy death ray was like or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and so we really just wanted to play into that where we like to interact with the audience. We wanted to feel loose and fun and like you're hanging out with your best friends. And part of that is it feeling unscripted and it being just sort of like, we're going to go down a tangent. Like, of course, like every you, anyone who goes like an improvised show, because we generally speak, we'll improvise our monologues. You're going to have some like bits and jokes that don't kind of like lead anywhere, but that's kind of the fun of the show, of yeah. like this really sort of fun dinner party, I feel like. When did you then decide to write the second book? Did you have to pitch it in the same way you had to pitch the first book? No. So the first book, I wrote like a 40 page proposal. So you basically do like one page, like this is the thing, then you do an outline breaking down all the chapters or essays. And then I had to prove, um, you know, my skills as like a, an author. And so I wrote two sample chapters. And so with this, the the proposal for Everything's Trash, I think it was like 10 pages and I just did like an outline and I just wrote like the what came, became the intro and that was like it. I was so burnt out. Um when I finished like my book tour in 2016 because I was shooting a TV show at the same time and I was just like this was too much I need a break honey so I remember like early 2017 I think I just got the job writing on Portlandia and I was like I think I'm ready to write another book again I think I have an idea and so I just like sort of whipped together like a proposal like a month and sent it over to 
my now former editor, she moved to a different publishing house um, in my lit age. And I was like, I think I have another book in me. And so that was uh, early 2017. And then I think we sold it. We sold it May. And then I got like busy with other work. And then, yeah, I pretty much wrote it from de- end of December till June. I, I should have asked earlier, but mm-hmm. why the why the trash framing or the it's yeah. trash, but it's okay? <laughs> because I feel like you know the title came about um, after the 2016 election. And what do you mean? What happened? You know, just uh, this guy got elected. A guy won. This guy, this like white I heard guy. a woman was running. No, it's a straight white guy who eats a lot of McDonald's. And calls Mexicans rapists, and he people were like, "That sounds great." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that happened. Yeah, so that happened. He got elected. I'm not saying his name because nah, bitch. And I think I know. I don't want to speak for. There's so many people who were thrilled about his election, but I know a lot of my friends and I were just really confused because we sort of were like, "Oh, this is not how the script." was written in our minds, you know? And so, you know, I went through the period of just, like, being really sad, crying, and feeling kind of depressed, and, like, everything's over. Like, it just felt like to go from Obama to this, it it feels so ignorant. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was feeling kind of, like, down in the dumps about it, but then I was, like, really inspired by how people were really trying to be, like, well, this isn't the end. This doesn't have to define us. Like, we could turn the ship around. And so I was like, yeah, everything is trash right now, but it's going to be okay because we're going to figure it out, hopefully. And so that's how the title came about. The first book, it was a lot of stories that had happened years ago, as mm-hmm. those things go. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some stories in this that are older, but a lot of them are things that happened in the period mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah. Were you living your life, like, were you now, like, observing your life while you're living it in this way. Like, I think, you know, that happens probably when you're doing Two Dope Queens mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, this happened, I'm going to tell on stage or whatever. Yeah. But was it different where you're like, now my life is this thing that must be writable? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to the Nora Ephron where everything is copy. <laughs> so that's not necessarily my jam. It's more, I think, the two years since the first book came out have been, like, pretty nuts just in general. And I wasn't really expecting that. And I was just like, oh, I have some fun stuff to write about. <laughs> like, I really just feel like I, I, I try not to go into a situation where I'm like, I wouldn't use this to, like, have something to write about and just sort of live organically because I am fairly ridiculous anyway. So I, I just try to live it. And then if it feels like it's something that I can share that is um, not going to disrespect anyone or... Um, expose anyone in a way that is not respectful or and it's not that I'm like trying to make everyone look great but like for instance like the thing about Julia Roberts like I'm not going to reveal her kids names I'm not going to talk about them it's not I don't have permission to do that so I just want to treat everyone with kindness in the way that I want to be treated and I, I think that it's hopefully that came through in the book. When the Julia Roberts thing came about were you like this is gonna be a good story? I didn't even <laughs> think about that it was just like it's Julia Roberts. It's so crazy because it's like, you know, we live in New York and you just see so many like famous people walking around. But there is a very, when you meet her and you spend time with her, you're just like, that is a movie star. Like she is a person, she's a loving wife and she's so funny and smart and like, 
you know, she has tons of interests and she's a great mom, but you're just like, she just has the markings of just like a classic timeless movie star. So there are moments where you're like, I remember when we were all hanging out, just like when we were shooting the movie, it was like me and Vanessa were like having dinner. It was like a group dinner with everyone, but like Vanessa and I were sitting the closest to um, Jules and um, Jules, yes. LOL. Um, and she was like, when are you guys' birthdays? And we're like, oh, you know, whatever. I'm like, oh, September 28th. And she's like, okay. She like pulls out her phone and she puts my birthday in her calendar. And then she texted me on my actual birthday. And it was just like, what? It's so nuts. But she's just so chill. I think also, like, people that were movie stars when we were kids, Mm -hmm. there's no way they will seem like normal people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm a huge romantic comedy person, like, you know, my best friend's wedding, like, all that stuff. So I'm just like, oh, this is is the Julia from the big screen. But then she's like a normal person. You're like, okay, cool. So how soon after the experience... Were you like, oh, I have to write about this? Or or even what about the experience made you feel like it was something you wanted to write about? I think it was really when I came up with the the, the essay is what the top 10 non-trash moments of my life. Because <laughs> I think at that point in the book, I was talk, talking about how fashion industry is bad, body, like, you yeah. know, body issues that all women go through. Feminism needs to, like, figure it. So there's a lot of stuff where I'm like, this needs to step up. This needs to step up. And I'm like, I just want to take a time out in the book and like have it be like a nice palate cleanser and have it also be like, there's a lot of kind of annoying things going on. But like, truly, I am blessed. And I wanted it to be a mix of like cool things like Julia Roberts encounters and then other like, you know, kind of just not like crazy things where it's just like, oh, I got cast in a movie or I ate all the carrots that were in my fridge before they spoiled. So like a mix of like high and low. We'll be back with more Phoebe Robinson after this word from our sponsor. Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by ABC's The Alec Baldwin Show, airing Sundays at 10, 9 central. Smart, sophisticated, provocative. The interviewee has become the interviewer. Could be a lot to handle. A good old-fashioned conversation with interesting people such as Kim Kardashian West this week. Don't miss Sundays After Shark Tank. We are back with Phoebe Robinson, and we're going to talk about writing and how uh, you do it. I I feel like, to set the stage, I feel like Mm -hmm. at some point in the last year, I I asked you something, and you're like, oh, I'm doing a writer's retreat, (laughs) and I don't remember anything about it, but I think the bigger picture is sort of like uh, set the stage of what is what does a Phoebe Robson look like when she writes? To think of like, Ooh. I think about how like Robert Caro wears a suit and like goes to an office to like write a book. That's not me. Yeah. What is, <laughs> set the stage for the listener. Oh gosh. Okay. I, I write at home. I know a lot of people are like, oh, I can't write at home. And I'm like, what? Like I, you can't write in the place you're probably the most comfortable in. So I'm, I, I'll, I generally speaking, we either write at home and obviously if I travel or write in hotels, but I'm usually pantsless. I got a comforter. Um, I tend to write the best between the hours of like 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. Um, I just really, I can really get it going at like 2 in the morning mm-hmm. and I'm just killing it. And yeah, I'll, you know, like I'll have the TV on in the background just on mute, just I feel like less alone. That's interesting. Yeah. And I do a lot of, I do reward systems. Especially with writing a book because, you know, you have like a word count. I think my word count for this was like 80,000 words, which I think I went to like 90, so that's fine. But I would be like, okay, so you have 
say like I had this today. So, okay, I have this interview um, at one thirty. You got to write 500 words before you can leave the house. So then it's like if I have to get up earlier mm-hmm. to, to get that done, then I'll do that. So I do a lot of reward system. Then it's like you can have a snack or you can go do this fun interview. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of that. Um, there's also a lot of procrastination. I feel like you write too. Yeah. So, you you know, like half of writing is like, not doing it. What do you have before you start writing? Are are you outlining for a thing like this? You know, like some of your pieces will have research in it, but this mm-hmm. one ne- doesn't necessarily. But like, would you have um, read why like studies about why historically black people in America are much more like much more or less likely to know how to swim? Like mm-hmm. before writing this, how much? What did you have prepared before you just sort of like okay? Yeah, I mean, so it's a mix of stuff. Like, it all depends. Like, I know that the feminism essay, because I had, like, a lot of statistics, so it would be kind of like me being like, what is the point that I want to make? If I want to, like, make a certain point, but I'm like, I need to back this up with, like, information that's, like, valid, then I'll, like, do my research and make sure I do it from both sides so I'm not just, like, trying to, like, cherry-pick stuff that's going to validate my point. But usually, you know, like, with every book or I guess both. There's only two. I, you know, I have like my outline where basically each essay is like summarized in a two or three paragraphs, and so I go, okay, that's where I know where I have to end up. This is where I need to go, and then I sort of just kind of like let myself sort of be surprised. Like with the feminism essay, like it was the last essay I wrote. I kept being like, I don't know how to tackle this, and like. Everyone, the publisher kept being like, I'm really excited about this essay. <laughs> and I was just like, so much has been written about it. And I'm like, I don't know how am I going to infuse this with life? How can I also be honest about how I feel about my complex relationship with feminism? And how can I talk about its failings in a way? Not purely from an emotional standpoint, but from like a factual logistic standpoint. And so there was a lot that went into that. And I just sort of would sit down and I just would like these are things like as I'm like researching it and like figuring out more like the history of it in a real concrete way then that's like how I was able to pull like different references and notes and stuff. You sort of have an idea of where the piece has to go mm-hmm. and then you know how do you actually I I, I have a sense probably of you right because I feel like everyone of our generation is like uh, you edit along the way but mm-hmm. how do you how do you write? Are you just sort of like, are you able to sort of like freely just type and then you sort of see where it is afterwards? Do you sort of write the story more plainly and then add jokes afterwards? Is it sort of closer to like if you're improvising a story, mm-hmm. but you're just sort of typing it out? I always have to get the intro down. If I can't get the intro down, then like I'm like dead in the water, I feel like. I edit as I go. So that's always like whenever I... <laughs> I always like whenever I turn on like my essays or whatever, they're always like this beginning's like really good. And I'm like, cause it's like the fifth time. <laughs> and then like <laughs> the outro is like pure trash. And I've been like, this, I know this closing paragraph is trash. I will fix when I revise. They always like laugh at that. But um, yeah, so I tend to like sort of as I like am writing and I keep going and I always like to start back from the beginning, which I know is kind of like slows down the process, but I'm always like what a, make sure I maintain the thesis of this. Also, I want to make sure that I'm allowing myself to sort of be surprised at where I'm going to go and be like, oh, well, I didn't think I was going to go down this avenue, but now that I have, I can at least go back to the intro and sort of tweak it that way. So my my stuff tends to be overwritten. That's my thing. People either underwrite or overwrite. I'm an overwriter. 
by far. I have to get every single joke out. <laughs> and then I go back and edit out. And then in parts, I think with this book, because there were so many essays where you're like, I'm talking about being alone and how like historically for women, that's like a tough thing. And I did, you know, I had to like do research, really done studies where women are more terrified of being alone. They gain like a cancer diagnosis and like just talking about like getting out of financial debt. And so I really was like, this stuff is not necessarily ha 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 and trusting that and being like, I can write like a semi-serious paragraph for and just write it and not be like oh it has to be funny the whole time so I really just sort of kind of wanted to figure out the rhythms it's sort of like when you listen to an album there's like upbeat stuff and slower stuff that's kind of like how I approached this book Alana Glazer wrote the forward of this book hi Alana and her forward was wonderful and but she she described her writing in, in a way that I was uh, obsessed with that I was like I, I will read it so you don't have to read it but I, <laughs> okay. you're gonna have to read something out later uh Phoebe's relationship with language is the absurdity of her comedy. Just in real life, I get texts with abbreviations abbreviations that have apologies attached to them, so the phrase ends up being ten times as long as if she had just written out the original word. Like Eames, a.k.a. email, hashtag LOL, hashtag not worth it, instead of email. But she'll play like that even when, or especially when, it comes to talking about race and gender and money and all the stuff that makes most people's butts clench. She invites us all to get straight to it, gets her most intimate and vulnerable places, but you don't have to even realize you're going there because of how she dances with language, and she invites her readers to do the same. You'll find yourself adopting Phoebe's phrases because they truly make life more fun to live, but also because they make it easier to hold at the same time. The insane complexities of the world while also giving a little eye roll, a shoulder shrug, and laughing that shit off. Oh, I love you, Alana. So... I want to talk about a breathes yeah. and language. So are you fluent in how you sound? Like, is your brain thinking this way or mm. you're like, yeah. oh, I'm writing Croatia. I don't want to write Croatia. It's truly, it's just like with stand-up where you want to get to the point where your jokes sound the way you talk with your friends. That's like what my writing style is, uh, which is probably not going to win me like, you know, awards. <laughs> but, it, it, you know, I really just am, I'm really like dorky. I like to play around with language. I think, you know, especially when it comes to books, there is, there can be such a level of pretension involved. And I just, I'm always kind of like, it's a book, guys. <gasps> like, you know, of, even like the greatest stuff, it's like, it's cool. It's okay to like not be so self-serious about it. And I really started doing like a briefs and all that stuff. Like, I want to say in my early twants, like I would just <laughs> sometimes I can't help myself. Mm-hmm. My early twenties, um, and um, I used to be in at this. Uh, so I used to work at Picture House, and all of us assistants were like really obsessed with like the hills. We're all clearly like to like the hills is like for high schoolers. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. not for people in their tw- like early to mid 20s. And so we would just all like joke around and just like kind of like make fun and like just like start making abbreviations and I just sort of like kept with it and I'm like this is fun. Yeah. This adds to it. Speaking of the sort of not taking it seriously, there's yeah. multiple times in this book where you have typos and then you'll note that there yeah. are typos but you'll keep them in anyway. Yeah. Uh or there's a part <laughs> where um there's a sentence and then the footnote goes like, I put a colon, then was planning to write something yeah. smart like Judge Judy, but I did not do it. You can't win them all or whatever you hashtag. Yeah. That is uh, 
books are worked on, right? You can. Right. It's not a thing yeah. like you're talking. Um, you could be <laughs> like, oh, I'll write something better. Why do you keep those things in? What do you think it offers to the tone wise to to the reader? I think sometimes when you do a, a typo when you're trying to write something. It's like unintentionally funny because it like sort of reveals something that you were thinking at the moment or just like how you can't like I misspelled laugh and I was like as L.A.F. And I like don't like I like I don't know what my brain did. but I think my brain was like peace out, dog. And so I was like, I'm keeping that. That is hilarious (laughs) that I'm misspelling laugh right now um, when I'm trying to make a point about something. And so I just try and I think there's a especially because of social media everyone is like trying to present the highlight reels or like when they're like perfect or whatever. And I think in a book like mine, which is like talks about serious stuff, but it's also, I think rooted in comedy first and foremost that I, I think there's something I always love that stuff. Like I love like on the podcast when Jess and I would say something and she would trip over a word and say something wrong. Like I, I just love that yeah. moment. Cause I'm like, that's just an honest, like real moment where you catch someone just being like, Oh, blah, 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 blah. and you're like, wait, what was that? And they're like, what? No, nothing. And it's just like, they, they feel like they're getting caught in something. I just think that's fun. And I'm like, that could be a technique that I could use in my writing now because I think the audience trusts me reading. They know that I'm not an idiot. It's, it, it makes it more conversational, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The The main types of jokes mm-hmm. that you have oh gosh. Uh, that I love okay. is metaphors. Oh, you I love lo- me a metaphor, oh, honey. <laughs> do you? I had no idea. So you will put – so like the Celebrity Apprentice thing, you put a metaphor and then in that metaphor you have – it is a, there's a, you, another metaphor. Um, um, so, by the way, my college professor, Thad Zilkowski, he hated it. He'd be like, why are you layering your metaphors? He's like, stop it. You're mixing metaphors, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's my style, baby. <laughs> well, it's, it's um, yeah. I think he's probably alluding to, which is like metaphors exist to be like, Oh, how can I explain it? How hot it is! Yeah. I will do a metaphor, <laughs> but your metaphor. So you go. It was so hot, it is ignorant. So you're like, okay. So now we understand it's very hot. And then you <laughs> be like, this is how ignorant it was, which is a whole example of a very ignorant thing that has happened to you. <laughs> um, what is going on in your brain? What you know? Oh what my is? Gosh, yeah. I I what is going on in your brain is a great question because I don't know half the time. Sometimes I can't. I just. I'm such a pop culture head. I, you know, growing up, I just watched so much film and TV. It's like what I loved. I read too, but like film and TV was like my jam. And so I just have like all these references just like ready at the drop of the hat. And sometimes people like, they're like, I don't remember this moment from 1997, Mm -hmm. but it's making you laugh. And my brain is always, I don't know, I guess it's always kind of thinking like, what is this thing like? Yeah, and so when I write something, then I just could kind of like pull through my Rolodex and be like, "It's like this meatloaf <laughs> moment that no one cares about." <laughs> the meatloaf reference uh, it made me think of the a thing a writing teacher once told me, which was that uh, to be careful with references because they could they have a way of excluding people, right? Mm-hmm. If you like, oh, they're not going to get that, and they might be like, um, "Well, I don't know this. This is not yeah. for me." But what I Partly reading your book, I sort of was thinking about it also as a way of including people, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. people that read it be like, I do get that and they feel sort of safe in it. Is your hope that it'll be 
a thing for other people to think like you or partly you're just like, here's a window of what my brain is doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I'm, I'm kind of like you don't have to get every reference. It's, it, you can get the mood of it and you can kind of know, like even if you don't laugh at this joke, you'll laugh at the next one. And, I, and it, there's a thing where I just feel like in comedy, I think like specificity really is what makes a lot of stuff suit. Like the stuff that slays me is always a thing where it's just like a very like, there's this Bill Burr, which special was it? Uh, God, I forget which special. But he was like talking about <clears throat> how his now wife, Nia, had um, adopted a dog while he was out, mm -hmm. out of town. And he, he referenced, like it was like a, a bulldog. So it was like breathing like super heavy and he referenced he's like it sounds like um uh pittsburgh steeler offensive lineman jim jeffcoat and that because i'm a football head yeah that fucking killed me i was like he is dropping a jim jeffcoat reference right now and those moments where that happens where you're like i didn't think anyone else yeah. knew this thing but it, it like even if you like don't know like jim jeffcoat but you go like oh Football, offensive lineman, yeah. you still get it. Yeah, it's interesting because yeah. sometimes you will, rarely you will explain it, right? In the Chilino, Chilino and Barnes, you were like yeah. injury attorney. So you're like, well, yeah. otherwise, that's really. the funniest one is in the first book, you explain what reading to filth is, but in this book, you don't. Yeah. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> oh you got to keep up, honey. Yeah, it's like, we <laughs> By the first book. <laughs> yeah. So you write, I had diarrhea for seven days and I talked about it to everyone as if I survived Dunkirk. Yes. <laughs> uh, you joke a lot throughout both your books about uh, your parents reading this book. Yes. But I think uh, in general, what is your relationship to your truth and your work and your writing? You know, like, yeah. there are some people like, I'm going to write a book. It'll be personal essays, but I'm not going to tell people I had diarrhea for seven days. Yeah. <laughs> what are, you know, what is your relationship to those things? Like, oh, of course, you didn't have, that was a parenthetical. That didn't need to be in the book. Yeah. I think I just sort of like, like my parents don't listen. They didn't never listen to the Two Dope Queens podcast. Like, that's probably going to be nuts. They did watch the HBO ta the shows and they thought that it was really great and funny. And um, I just am always kind of like, Sometimes you get ner like I get nervous with the sex stuff or like oh if this is like too I don't know you're just like oh is this gonna like make my parents be like oh but they're like they're so cool about it just being like we get that this is like your comedy and it's not like it doesn't have to mean everything we have to like talk about it over like Christmas dinner mm -hmm. or Kwanzaa for people who celebrate Kwanzaa so. I just am sort of like, I think I just have to write as truthfully about something. And if I don't feel comfortable writing about it, then I just hold off on it. I'm like, just give it a couple of years and maybe I'll feel different. Like the thing where I wrote about the guy, Eric, who like after we like slept together was just kind of like telling me how my body like wasn't that great. Like that was something I like couldn't write about for a while just because I'm like, I just didn't. I didn't want it to be like, woe is me. Like yeah. someone says something shitty to me and like I, I wanted to figure out how I can like make it funny and also make it a, a point about body positivity. And so like sometimes you just have to sort of like let it marinate and feel like how can I get at the truth of this thing without getting in the way of it. Yeah, so because you, you had to process that to be like, what is it, how I actually feel about mm -hmm. it? Where the diarrhea thing, you're like, oh, I feel this is funny that this yeah, happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you write – 
clearly Julia and Danny adhere to the Mahatma Gandhi quote, be the reparations you wish to see in the world. Yeah. I, I wanted to ask you uh, about how you use the idea of reparations in the book. And I think a good place to start, uh, if you could, is to read a little bit from the chapter about uh, bon, uh, meeting Bono twice oh is my, my reparation. Gosh. Bon Bon. I so, love him so much. So this is from a chapter called Meeting Bono Twice is My Reparations. So slavery ended 153 years ago in 1865. And initially, black people who survived the unspeakable were promised 40 acres and a mule as recompense for the lifetime of abuse and agony they experienced, which is akin to getting your money back and also your freedom. BT Dubs, I'm fairly certain that Thurgood Marshall didn't graduate from Howard University School of Law, start a private practice, found the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, then was appointed marshal to the United States Courts of Appeals for the Second Circuit by President John F. Kennedy, all before becoming the first African-American Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, a position he held for 24 years. Also, I could half-watch three episodes of Suits in order to present this flimsy-ass argument to y'all, but I like to think he would admire my moxie. So anyway... Got to present day, 153 years and counting removed from slavery, which on the one hand seems like a long time, yet on the other isn't, considering that black people post-slavery didn't have a seamless transition into freedom. They still had to fight for basic human rights like voting, marrying whomever they want, and not being murdered merely for looking at a white person in a way the white person perceived as disrespectful. And some would argue those are three things black people are still fighting for. However, for me, I've been lucky enough that my latest trial and tribulation was being able to afford to see Bruno Mars at Madison Square Garden and instead suffering the indignity of watching all these white people's Insta stories of them walling out at the concert. Yep, I'm probably least deserving of 40 acres and a mule, but my being black is my store credit, so meeting Bono twice it is. And in my opinion, all us black folk are walking around with store credit and some of us don't know it or haven't cashed it in yet. Yep, as sucky as things are right now, I truly believe that reparations are all around us. Not only that, there's a reparation spectrum. 40 acres and a mule is at one end, and the other includes, but is not limited to, the following. Winning the lottery. White people apologizing when they're wrong. Being able to apply for a job that perhaps 50 years ago you wouldn't have been allowed to. Fenty beauty existing, and when a white artist performs at the Grammys and isn't backed by a black choir. Hashtag black people are more than the sriracha you use to liven up your dusty ass music. What I'm getting at is that all those things I listed above and more help brighten black lives, which are often riddled with micro and macro aggressions. And as I take stock of the 34 years I've been on this planet, I've probably had more than my fair share of reparations. What do you like about framing good things that happened to you that way? You know, I think I like to just say, joke and say, like, oh, this is my reparations. Like, you know, like for something minor mm-hmm. that happens that, like, a white person does for me, I'm like, oh, that was, like, my reparations. Um, and so I just thought that it could be kind of funny to play around with that in the book. And, like, people who know me know that I'm fully obsessed with you 2 And I've loved them since I was, like, 13 or whatever. And so me, like meeting Bono and him being so sweet to me, I'm like, this is my reparations. Like, I'm I'm not going to get any land, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have memories that I can hold in my hand. So that's nice. From reading the book, you know, you know there's the, the chapter about being a workaholic mm-hmm. and, you know, it's clear you accept, uh, you work hard to create things and there'll be sort of, there's an audience for that. But I was thinking about the sort of 
the reparations idea and thinking about your last couple of years that have been, I imagine, really wild for you. I think a lot of creative people have this, which is it's hard to accept that the good things that happen to them are because of them specifically. Mm -hmm. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. I think I like to always say, like, there's a lot of hard work. Then there's, like, people giving me a chance. Because I think it works in tandem. Like, he could have easily not had a podcast on WNYC. They could have been like, nah, we don't get it when they saw us perform live. And so it's like that opportunity, like we worked hard for it and we got, we, we became prepared so that when they said yes, we could hit the ground running and have a successful podcast because we knew our comedic voice. Mm-hmm. Even though we're still like developing as we like go along, like we really like had the foundation down. And so I think, you know, you don't want to be like, yeah, it all happened because of me. I'm the shit and blah, blah, blah. You know, but you also don't want to be like, oh, it was completely out of my control because it's like, that's also disingenuous. And it's also like, I think, you know, there is this kind of fantasy of the overnight sensation or people just kind of came out of nowhere. And it's just like, I've been doing this for 10 years and eight, eight and a half of those years were a struggle. You know, I wasn't getting hired for stuff. People weren't calling my phone. I couldn't even like get in rooms to audition for things. And so to now be at this point, it is... Because I did work hard for it and people were finally like, you know, taking a chance on me. So it's cool. I was thinking about the, the Julia Roberts story and then the, the Bono stories and there's uh, the stories about meeting Oprah mm-hmm. where you, you have a passage about, uh, you know, usually you try to be humble, but like I met Oprah, so I don't care or whatever. Yeah. Uh, why was it important for you to have these stories of these great moments that happened for you and the famous people you're sort of interacting with now? Like, why do you yeah. feel like that's a a worthy thing or an interesting thing or uh, an important thing for you to share to your reader. Yeah, I just kind of wanted it to be like a a part. It's it, it happened in my life, so I wanted to write about it, but I also wanted to write about it in a way that is like, for instance, the story. Yeah, I got to like swim with Julia's family, but you could sub them out for just like non-famous white people and it would still be just as funny that I'm like trying like these white people are really trying to encourage me to swim and like you you just gotta believe like that's like funny no matter who's doing that and then like the Bono thing is just like and Oprah like they're my two heroes I'm like they're the people that I want to be like you know in terms of like career and also their philanthropy so writing about those moments because I feel like they were funny and endearing and I I, I never want to write about any sort of interaction with a famous person as like they said this and then they said this and then blah 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 like I don't want it yeah. to just be solely that and like I feel like especially with the Oprah thing like you don't really ever hear her say anything it's just more about like how I missed her phone calls how I was in debt how I'm like an idiot like it was yeah. all like so I try and frame it around my like my quirks and like my mess ups in the moment or like my fangirling in the moment rather than like um relying on well this famous person's here so that's going to carry this story and like I feel like with the Bono stuff like I I don't think I specifically said anything that Bono said to me because yeah. I just wanted to respect that moment and that and just like let that live in my my heart and mind. And so I think that's a way I've been able to write about it and not feel like gross. I also think in your first book, there's there's sort of a lot of I wouldn't say aspirational, like, oh, I'll be famous one day. But there's sort of like you think about what it would be like to be in these spaces. Yeah. So I think as a reader 
and it, as fans will be like, well, now that she's there, I want to know what it's like because yeah. it's not going to have like that short sort of shift from I I just going to write about the people in U2 I'm going to have sex with because I'll yeah. never ever meet them <laughs> to meeting them yeah. is a vicariously like a very satisfying experience, I have to imagine. Yeah, it's cool. And and I, I found out that sometimes his staff will read like a couple of things I've written on Instagram <laughs> about him and the band and they'll be like oh he was like laughing so much and I'm like you're not supposed to read my ignorant shit to him you just want him to like focus on the fact that I do charity work not that I'm a ding dong but yeah <laughs> it's funny when you're talking about the how the Julia Roberts story could have been any white people yeah until you point that out I was like Oh, yeah, this is a story about white people, regardless of how yeah. <laughs> famous they are, still do white people stuff. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> let's let's rent a yacht. Yes, let's. Sure. Like, all okay. of it's like, she's never swam before. We will teach her. Yes, I'm like, that's like cute as hell. And like, it's just a very kind of like surreal moment. But it's, I feel like it's still grounded in like, I'm not good at something. I'm trying to get better at it. And I'm still mostly not great at it. Yeah, In that way, it's, it is still like, you, you joke in it how it, it's not like the blind side, but it is kind of like the blind yeah. side. <laughs> so, Phoebe, you have two podcasts, one yeah. of which is a TV show. You're mm-hmm. acting in movies. Uh, you've been doing stand-up for over 10 years at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. And you have these two books. What are you? What do you do? Oh, gosh. I like to s- – I'm like, I'm a multi hyphenate. <laughs> I think I like to say I'm in comedy. I think that's what I say first. Like, because I think everything I do is rooted in humor. And then go like, yeah, so I'm in comedy. And they're like, what kind? I'm like, oh, I like, I'll write. Or like, I have books. or I do a TV show. So I, I try to have it rooted in like, I am a funny person. So I think outside of career, I'm just as funny too. <laughs> That sound means it's time for the final segment, which is uh, it's called a laughing round. Because, uh, it's like a lightning round, but because it's podcast, uh, it's comedy because it's a laughing round. Okay. I'm doing, I want to do something special for you because I believe you've never done this before. But if you have, I will have another idea. Okay. So you talked about how you watch every episode of Inside the Actors Studio. Yes, I love that and show. And James Lipton, they're bringing it back, but James Lipton's not doing it anymore. Can I like audition a host for this? So they're rotating hosts. I bet you actually could. Oh, my God. For this version of the laughing round, I will do... A, a version of Jay Lipston's version of the Bernard Pivot <gasps> questionnaire. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. I've never, no one's ever thought to do that. That's great, Jesse. Yes. Number one, uh, what is your favorite word? Oh my gosh, what's my favorite word? <laughs> or may, what is your favorite abreve? Oh, my favorite abreve is uh, totes preach. <laughs> what's, your fa- what's your least favorite word or abreve? Oh, my least favorite word is panty. One panty. Yeah, panty. One panty. No, thank you. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Creatively, I just um trying to m- make a laugh creatively, spiritually, doing charity work, and emotionally, what turns me on a good FaceTime with a friend or my boyfriend. What turns you off? There are countless things. My my big my big call to action right now, because um, I'm an activist, just kidding. Um, but my big call to action as a, a wannabe activist is uh, white men who cut me off when they're walking. That burns my goddamn toast. 
What is your favorite curse word? Oh, uh, fuck. Oh, no, also like cunt. <laughs> Both of those. Especially now that you have a British boyfriend. Exactly. What sound or noise do you love? You know what I, I like? Um, and I swear this isn't, I'm not being a suck up, but I like the boom, like HBO, <laughs> because I I didn't have cable growing up and then went to college and I started watching Sex and the City when it was like airing in real time and Matt would always come on right before Sex and the City and I'd be like, oh, this is my happy space. What sound or noise do you hate? Oh, someone hawking up a loogie. I'm like, get the fuck out of here and do this at home. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I, <laughs> I said this to my boyfriend the other day and I often say things where I think he just goes... He probably shouldn't say that loud, but I was like, I was like, babe, truly, if I had the musical like ability, like if I was really like really could like sing and write music, I was like, I think I would probably be like one of the biggest artists of our generation. I'm like, I think I would be like a legacy act. And he was like, what the fuck? So if only you had this talent. I was like, I real. I was like, I. I'm like, I truly could be on the level of you too. And like, I wasn't like, this wasn't like jokes. But I was like, I because I work hard. I was like, I could be like that. And he was like, you 1,000 percent could not be that. What profession would you not like to do? I wouldn't want to be um, a doctor because I just couldn't tell anyone that someone they love passed away. If you can steal a joke in a way that. Uh, you sort of like remove it from someone else's existence and mm-hmm. now it's your joke and it's your joke and it's always been your joke and no mm-hmm. one will know that you stole it mm-hmm. except for maybe you. But ultimately, you now have this joke. Yeah. What would it be? Okay, from Wanda Sykes, I'm a Be Me special. She had this joke and I think it was about getting waxed and it was the fu- it, it was so funny it was just such a it was just about like you know women like i think waxing like going to spa and it was just like so good and she said it's something i try to remember the imagery but she had like the feeling of like the hair getting pulled out was just like you know you see like an animal running across like the serengeti and then it just immediately gets eaten by like a it was just so funny so I just think that she is really good at building bits like that. If you were to write a rom-com starring <gasps> yourself, oh what God. would your character's job be? Uh, my dream is to write a romantic comedy. Um, my job, you know what? She's not, she's not going to work in advertising. Get that the fuck out of here. There are tons of jobs. Um, I might have her working at a non-prof. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think that's like cute. It's like really hard work, but I'm like, y'all's. That's great. Yeah. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Um, I think I would like to hear him say, you know, not bad. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, all right. That's the end of the interview. <laughs> that was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's it for another episode of Good One. Phoebe Robinson's Everything's Trash, But It's Okay is out October 16th. Follow Phoebe on Twitter at DopeQueenPhoebes. Good One is produced by Mike Comite. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know one who, you know, might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck? You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox. You can follow me at Jesse David Fox. 
We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.